Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. There's a lot of pessimists out there. Almost every good thing that happens, someone is pessimistic about it. In the 2008 crisis, everyone was saying, oh my gosh, the whole world's going bankrupt. Capitalism is over. I was arguing with Nouriel Roubini on CNBC. He kept saying the market's going to zero. People laughed at me for saying, no, 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 I'm a big believer. The market's going to go up and the market went up. Not that I'm always right, but I think in general throughout history, it pays to be optimistic. You might not be optimistic about any one company or situation or invention, but just being optimistic about the world is healthy because what other way should you be? Like, you know, here's some here's some ways people have been pessimistic in the past. Right when the iPhone was released in 2007, Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, said there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. Guess what, Steve? Apple has sold more than 116 million iPhones this year. Like, remember when the Y2K bug happened? Everyone thought the world was going to collapse on January 1st, 2000. Didn't happen. Nothing happened. The Beatles, even, when they applied to, for their first record label, when they auditioned, the, this, the guy at the record label, it was I think it was called Decca Records, he told the band's manager, Brian Epstein, these guys are finished. They're no good. So, and then nobody thought everyone would be, anybody would be shopping on the internet ever, and on and on and on. So it's interesting because my friend Jason Pfeiffer, who's on this podcast today, he started a podcast called The Pessimist Archive. Now, he's not a pessimist. What he's doing, he's archiving all of the interesting times throughout history that people have been so wrong by being pessimistic. And, and he analyzes those times and what we could learn from them. And I could see as he's been doing this podcast how, how he's even changed and has more common sense when he looks at situations, historical events, predictions. And it's really fascinating to listen to him talk about it. And we, we talk a lot about the nature of pessimism, but then we specifically talk about some things involved in, you know, what's topical right now, which is elections and how basically people have been accusing the other political parties of election hacking and foreign meddling in U.S. elections for over 224 years. Like, this is not new. Or, you know how everyone says, this election is unprecedented. Apparently, he looked back. 
people have been saying that since 1800, that this election is unprecedented. It's amazing how quickly people forget just even recent history and, of course, long-term history. So without further ado, Jason Pfeiffer and the Pessimists Archive. I didn't watch. I was I was depressed afterwards. It was just so pathetic. You know, I, and then... I, I, I was thinking about... I, so I didn't watch it. And why, why didn't you watch it? Because it was like the pay-per-view event of the century. Because it felt like all anxiety, no payoff. <laughs> like, what am I going to see? Well, the, the payoff, the payoff is the entertainment, but it's like, not entertainment to me. Right? It's not entertainment. It's just, it's just completely depressing to me. I, I'm into entertainment if it feels like it's either completely non-consequential, or if it's entertainment that's also, you know, an interesting engagement. Like, I, I loved previous debates. I watched all previous debates because I felt like. They were going to be a mixture of theater, but also ideas, and that it was an important moment in the country's history. And yet, I knew that this debate was not going to be that. It was There was no way it was going to be a rational exchange of ideas. And the stakes are way too high. Like, I don't want to feel that anxious for something that I can't control. <laughs> and I can't. I guess maybe you're right. Like, that's why maybe I felt depressed afterwards. I, I was like, oh my God, this, no matter what, this is just happening in the country. Like, whether it's good or bad, or whether we elect someone who actually has any effect on our lives, which is extremely rare, actually. Um, it's just depressing. Like, I'm going to be reading about these guys for the next four years in the newspapers. And, and, and you know exactly how both sides are going to play it. That's a that's a really depressing part yeah. of it to me too. Like I actually started trying to read the coverage of the debate this morning, but what I found was that it instantly depressed me because I understood how both sides of this could make it could spin it to their favor and that it wouldn't appear like spin to both sides' core bases. Right? And that 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 is a that is an awful thing. Every time that I'm reminded that we don't have an agreed upon set of facts in this country, I'm depressed. Because if you don't have an agreed upon set of facts, you can't have a conversation. And if you can't have a conversation, then you never get to any understanding. And the feeling that I have is that the current political moment is not about driving understanding anyway. It's only about a sense of winning and a sense of winning equals losing. Yeah, and and I guess the way I comforted myself after having watched the debate and also having that feeling like I know exactly how they're going to spin each side, I comforted myself with the feeling that I've I've felt all along. Like I even wrote about this almost twenty years ago. But the choice of president doesn't really affect the lives of most people. Now, if you're a president, and you say let's go to war. It does affect the lives of the people going to war. If, and the people who you're going to war with. And if you make a healthcare system that covers more people than otherwise would have been covered, it affects those lives, which is, you know, a few million people, which is a lot. But in general, for me personally, and I probably, and I think for you, there's no real effect any president 
has had on my life other than how if the general well-being of the country goes up or down, but they don't even really have an effect on that that much. Yeah, well, so that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The way that I try to comfort myself is by thinking about how um, no decision is permanent, right? That you could win, you could, you could, one side can win, but in 20 years back, 20 years, you could look back and see how that victory was actually the beginning of their loss. Uh, and, uh, you know, because that's what happens over and over again throughout history. I, there, there was an interesting argument uh, in the New York Times recently about how um, it was it was from a supporter, a pro-choice supporter, arguing that Roe falling, and Roe now obviously will fall. I mean, it's just a question of time. Um, that Roe falling won't actually be a terrible thing for the pro-choice movement because what it's going to spur on is a state-by-state -state legislative battle, which is going to get personal in the way that, I mean, the, the example that they used was Ireland, how people went kind of door-to-door -door in the same way that we saw with the pro-gay marriage movement uh, in America, where people were going door-to-door, -door, they were introducing themselves to people who were opposed to gay marriage, and they're like, hello, I am gay, let's talk. And that ultimately worked. I mean, that was a that was a shift that worked, and that having this be this thing that is just settled in the courts ultimately was just a really great political gift to the right, which they used extremely effectively for decades, right? I mean, you know, if you rewind back, you see that abortion wasn't actually... Uh, much of a political or or hot-button issue at the time of Roe v. Wade. Uh, but then it became one because it was a very expedient way to get people to the polls. And, um, and so you could, I think it's completely reasonable, you'd have to fast forward a while, but let's just say you fast forward 30 years, a full generation, you could see the confirmation of Amy Comey Barrett to the Supreme Court leads to the fall of Roe v. Wade, which leads to a completely different conversation in America, which leads to a kind of actually fuller embrace of abortion rights. Um, it's going to take a generation, but I think that you can see that because nothing ever stops. There's a cause and effect and a cause and effect, and it goes on forever, and no one victory at any one moment actually ever settles anything. And that isn't a great comfort, but I think that it is a better way of looking at things. Well, and and I agree with you. I mean, I think I think I get there in a slightly different way. For instance, I don't think Roe versus Wade will be overturned by uh, just because Amy Barrett's on the court. She has said that she wouldn't overturn it. She's you know she's an originalist who's against um, new laws kind of changing the texture of the constitution. But right. if a precedent is solid enough and, and future precedents refer to it enough, she won't overturn it. And she says Roe versus Wade falls in that category. But Roe versus Wade is really this tangential um, quasi amendment to the 14th amendment in, in, involving a woman's right for privacy if she's going to ha have an abortion. And that's how they kind of slip in you know, abortion, even though it's the, the law itself has nothing to do with abortion. So I agree with you that maybe there should be laws about the actual issue at hand, as opposed to everybody relying on this weird right to privacy issue in the 14th Amendment. So so I agree that there could be a better way to wrap this up legally that'll be more solid. But I, I don't necessarily think 
um, Amy Barrett is going to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I totally think she's going to. I mean, I guess, hey, we'll, we'll go back to this episode Let's in a couple of years and we'll see. Um, I, you know, in part, that's because I, I, I think that, man, I think that originalism is such an intellectual sleight of hand. It's like the greatest trick uh, a judge can play. It was a brilliant idea. I don't know if Scalia actually invented it or not, but because I don't know the history of it, but it is a brilliant, brilliant trick. Because the thing is that if you declare yourself the defender of the original idea of a document, then you actually get to define what that document says yourself. I mean, this is, right, to, to me, I have to tell you, like, original, I mean, this may be getting controversial in a way that I don't really mean to, but I see, uh, like, originalism in the same way that I see religious fanaticism, which is that you are trying to define the original document yourself, and then once you do that, you can create all the rules. And you can say that, well, it's not just me. It's, I'm, it's not, I'm not making the rules. The document is making the rules. Yeah, that's interesting. But if you are setting yourself up as the interpreter of the document, then you actually are the one creating the rules. And, and that's what I see in originalism. Yeah, that's interesting. And particularly since you look at the Constitution, what actually has withstood the test of time cleanly? <laughs> None of them. Yeah. Like, is there, are there any rights at all in the Bill of Rights that we've kind of you know, stood by all along for the past 200 years. Like freedom of speech is interpreted almost every single day, right to bear guns every day. Right. Even, I don't know, the right to due process. Well, we just had all our businesses shut down correctly or incorrectly with good intentions or not without due process. So what, what right has that? Do you actually feel confident you have? I wouldn't want to set any kind of rule now that, anybody would have to follow in 300 years. Not yeah. a, I can't think of a single thing that I could tell you outside of, I suppose, don't murder anybody, that anybody should be following in 300 years because I don't know what it's like in 300 years. And I think that you would be worse off in 300 years if you followed what I happen to say now. The hell do I know? I know barely anything about the year 2020. I certainly don't know anything about the year 2021. And I don't know anything about anything that comes after that. The idea that we should write something down and that it should hold permanently forever is so insane that I can't understand why it's attractive to anybody. Well, and of course, this, this is going to segue nicely into your podcast, but the good thing about the Constitution is, just defending it for a second, is that it does have the ability to amend itself. So uh, it can, in fact, change with the times. But uh, do you know the story of uh, Girdle and his um, citizenship? I don't. So, so Kurt Girdle was the, you know, like Girdle Escherbach was, there was this book about, you know, Kurt Girdle was this amazing mathematician and he and Einstein were best friends in the 1940s. They were working at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton and Girdle was becoming a citizen. So he's got to go down to the courthouse and take a citizenship test and then he becomes a U.S. citizen. And he says to Einstein on their daily walk, he says, I can't wait to do this. I found uh, a, a paradox, a contradiction in the constitution. I want to tell the judge about it. And Einstein's like, look, I think I better go with you to this test. And so they basically, you know, Einstein and some other famous mathematician went and they stopped Girdle from pointing out his, the contradiction of the constitution. But what the contradiction is, is that you could amend the constitution to get rid of amendments or you could amend the constitution <laughs> to um uh to basically be dead and so ultimately it becomes a worthless 
piece of paper. And, and the interesting thing is, if you study Gödel's mathematics, his whole point is that mathematics itself is has a contradiction in it. You cannot prove everything in mathematics because there's a similar contradiction in the principles of mathematics. So it's interesting that he caught this in the Constitution. But he did become a citizen after all. I love so. that. I love that. And and by the way, I I feel like I just wanna I just wanna state for the record in case I start getting like angry emails about people saying that I'm discarding the Constitution. I'm certainly doing no such thing. The point that I just want to make is that like I don't think that you can you can stop at the original understanding of the world from the point of view of the people who created a document. I think that you have to take into account where we are all going and what our needs are now. So yeah, I think it's it's fantastic that the Constitution could be amended, and it has and it should. And of course, the foundation of it from freedom of speech on downward is valuable and important. But of course, our understanding of what freedom of speech means has evolved, and it should, because, because when the Constitution was written, we had far fewer means of speech than we do now. And, and I think that it's important to understand that rules can be rules, but rules needed to be need to be applied to and considered in the world in which the rules are being experienced. And that is why I don't think that a originalist understanding of the Constitution is constructive. I feel like an originalist understanding of the Constitution is a trick for a subjective reading of the Constitution. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. It's almost a good persuasion technique that, and I've seen this happen in negotiation actually, where the better negotiator, two sides are negotiating, the better negotiator will basically set the rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say you're selling me a company and then I say, okay, let's, let's, um, I want to buy your company, but let's figure out how we're going to figure out what it's worth, which is very complicated. We could say, well, how about it's worth, you know, the average of the past six months of earnings. And, you know, let's kind of come up with some formula of how we estimate the next six months of earnings. And you agree, but I happen to know that the next six months of earnings are going to collapse for various reasons. So because I set, we set the rules of engagement, I set the rules and then you agreed, now uh, everything's gonna happen the way I want it to and you have to agree by staying true to your word. Right. But I, I've, I've seen many negotiations work like this and it's amazing how well the, the masters of negotiating do this. But what you're saying is basically Scalia defined the rules of engagement on a Supreme Court decision and all the originalists said, yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's do it. And so now he gets to basically decide whatever he wants based on his interpretation that day of what originalism is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that it's, I mean, listen, if you, if you have defined the constitution, um, in a way in which when you read the constitution, it pretty much always says what you personally want it to say, which, which is, which is, I understand that there were times where Scalia or any judge um, will rule against their own personal beliefs because they feel like it's what it's what the law of the land is, and and kudos every time anybody does that on either side because that is the, that is what a judge should be doing. But I think more times than not, certainly if you look back at Scalia's rulings, and I'm gonna I'm gonna predict for Amy's rulings as well that um, 
that what you're going to see are rulings that are based on an original reading of the Constitution, but in fact are actually quite in line with their personal feelings about uh, morals and standards. And I, I agree because you, there, there's contradictory stuff in her decisions in terms of, you know, it's, it seems like she's, she's fitting the curve basically like, oh, in here the Constitution applies, here it doesn't, but it just seems like her moral opinion doing that. And, you know, I don't care, actually. Like, you know, she should vote based on her morals, and she probably she probably assumes she has really good morals. And again, I think her version of originalism, and as you point out, that is almost meaningless to use that word, but her version of it d does seem to include not overturning Roe versus Wade. But to your other point, even if she does overturn it, I do think there's going to be a, a, a better legal uh, wall that is built to to protect uh, choice, so we'll yeah. see. Well, you're right. You're right. We'll see. And and, and I mean, maybe that may, maybe final thought on that before we move on to something else. God, I get nervous talking about this stuff because I I never talk about politics uh, publicly because I I I just see like all downside and no upside to it. Um, but um, uh, but I I think you know a, a interesting or an argument that the right makes is that the courts shouldn't be deciders of of law. And uh, that's been the motivating, articulated philosophy of conservative jurists. And I think that you could see this play out in a way in which, right? It, it's, there's a funny way in which if, let's just say they overturn Roe v. Wade and then it becomes a state-by-state -state battle, and we obviously know where the states are going to land right now, but I don't know where the states are going to land 20, 30 years down the road where there's uh, an evolving conversation based on whatever the whatever the laws are that are passed as soon as Roe is stroke, struck down. But I think that you might get to a place where even the left eventually looks at however the chips fell and says, yeah, shouldn't have been decided in the courts. It's actually better that we did it on the ground. You know, I, I don't know. But uh, but I, I I think the next generation on this subject will be very interesting because the previous generation was, the previous generation was all about the chase. And now I think you've got the catch. And now you find out what happens after the catch. Well, let me ask you this. And, and, we're just going to keep talking about politics for a little bit, even though you, you hate it. <laughs> even though you make for, me very uncomfortable doing it. For, first yeah. off, I love watching the debates because even if I don't know anything about the issues, I like figuring out what's the game. No, they're all BSing throughout all the debates. They're just trying to win votes. Sure. So it's a so it's a game, right. and the, the winner of the game wins the most votes, and the, per, the the person with the best strategy and a little bit of luck, like most games, uh, wins the most votes. And so I always like figuring out what is the strategy of each contestant in this game, whether it's mm -hmm. the Democratic primaries or this debate last mm -hmm. night. And then given that I have figured out what their strategy is for playing the game, are they correctly executing on this strategy? And that usually determines, you know, the combination of who has the best strategy with who executes on that strategy, the best determines the winner of the debate and then ultimately the winner of these elections. So I like figuring that stuff out from a, almost like from a game perspective yeah. and from a game player's perspective. It, it's fascinating. None of the issues I care about because they don't care about any of the issues. I assume they have no, every president has immediately gone back on all of their sure. <laughs> promises. So totally. that doesn't even matter. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's just the main thing I like about politics, period. <laughs> right, well, in that case, 
uh, I think you would have felt like, and again, I, I should caveat that I didn't watch it, but I did read about it. Um, I think that you would have found last night's debate to be a total masterclass in strategy execution. Because the way that I, or the way that I read the moment was that the Trump campaign is aware that most people see Biden as existing on a higher ground. He's taken the higher ground than Trump, who is often uh, a mudslinger. And I think that they wanted to drag Biden down so that everybody could say, oh, well, these guys are equals. They're equals. They throw insults at everybody. They're just, you know, two guys slugging it out. And so Trump comes in and he's disruptive and he get he gets exactly what he wanted out of Biden. I mean, Biden bit so so hard on it, right? I mean, you saw that the 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 lead of the of the time story on it s- describes it as a mud fight and quotes Biden as saying uh that he said shut up or something like that. I mean, that is now you have now you've created if you're the Trump campaign and you wanted to create an equivalency on on the on decorum between the two candidates, I think that you just accomplished that. I think that you went out and you and you dangled it in front of Biden and he went for it because he got frustrated. And now they're on the same level. I think it was a perfect I, execution of a strategy. I I, I the problem is the it, what happened in the debate is not exactly what the media reported, which is also to be expected. I I Biden did say shush. I didn't hear him say shut up. Mm-hmm. I heard him say shush. But I think Trump failed in his execution. I think his real strategy, Trump's real strategy was to get Biden so flustered that he would commit one of his infamous gaffes that mm-hmm. suggests that he might be having dementia. Right. And Biden's strategy, and this is Biden's master strategy for every debate I've ever seen him in since 2008. But Biden's strategy was just that expectations were so low, just act calm the entire time. Mm -hmm. Don't make a gaffe. Whenever you you could even see his 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 coaching. Whenever he felt like he was about to make a gaffe, or whenever he started to stutter a little bit, he would stop what he was doing. He would look straight at the camera and he would talk to the audience at home. Mm. So it's almost like he was playing like an actor role, which is a good way to get rid of a stutter, is to switch who you're portraying right. as an actor. Right. And, and he so, has a so, stutter. Yeah. And so he he succeeded in um, exceeding the low expectations, not really making any gaffes. He didn't let, get angry at all. I mean, despite the the shush. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, you know, he, 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 in fact, what happened was, is that, and also you can't really fact check Biden. He kept calling Trump a liar but that's not something you can fact check. Right. <laughs> like just calling someone an insult is not fact checkable. Sure. And so, but but Trump was biting the bait and Trump who has done pretty well in, you know, like he did well in the Republican debates with 16 opponents, you know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. He, he's done okay in debates. He kind of fell into Biden's trap and you could see him just getting angrier and angrier and he was twitching. And it was it wasn't really a presidential look for him. I feel like he should have loomed over the stage in some metaphorical way, in 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 the same way he did it physically against Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. he should have stayed above the arguing, and he just he got too defensive, which is very unusual for him. So I do think Biden executed almost perfectly, and I think Trump did not. And so I almost, if I were Biden now, I would not have any more debates because he he won everything he needed to in that debate. But 
we'll we'll see what happens. It's always it's always interesting. Do you think that it's going to shift any polls? It shifted the prediction markets uh, considerably. You know, just even a few points uh, shifts the uh, prediction markets quite a bit. In what uh, way? But, in, in which direction? Uh, Trump went down and Biden went up. Trump's at his lowest point in a, a, a month or so, and Biden's mm. at his highest point since the Democratic National Convention. Mm. And so, so that's meaningful that people are putting money. You know, I like I trust that more than polls because people are, are going to lose money based on how they're betting right now. They're going to lose or win money. So they, they have skin <laughs> in the game. And so they, they really want to be right. And, right. you know, but again, in terms of how, how any of this affects me personally or, or, or most of the 328 million people in the country, I think very little, I, I, I'm willing to believe like 10 to 20 million people are affected, but uh, 300 million people probably won't be. And so it just, it's just doesn't, it's just, I've never cared about presidential elections before. I've never voted one and I've been vote shamed so many times, but I'm getting vote shamed more than ever in this election. And it's not that people say, oh, James, you have to vote or else you have no voice. It's just, everybody's just saying you have to vote for their candidate. So they just want two votes by forcing me to vote and vote shaming me. So it's, that's always annoying for me. You know, this is a funny thing that I've, been thinking about as I see vote campaigns, right? Every influencer and celebrity and brand and whatever are now saying, vote, 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 vote. The NBA players all are wearing shirts that say vote. And the funny thing about it is everybody thinks that by saying vote, that they're going to prompt a vote for their side, right? But what, yeah. you know, People I mean, say, oh no, just vote anywhere. We don't care. But that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Yeah. You're not look, you're not interested in civic participation. You're interested in driving votes for your side, which I I can appreciate. Yeah. But it's a I, I I'm not sure how effective. I suppose I suppose you're making an assumption about your audience, right? So you're making an assumption about your audience. So the NBA, an NBA player wearing a shirt that says vote is assuming that most people who are seeing it agree with them. And, and, I, and I bet that every influencer who says vote is making an assumption about their audience and saying, these are people, these are my people. Obviously, these are people who agree with me on politics too. And so my encouragement to vote is actually a subtle, without me saying it, encouragement for my side. And I wonder how true that is. Like, well, I, do, you have people, any, do you have any sense of the breakdown in politics of your audience? I would say it's about... 50, 50, mm -hmm. but this is, but this is my point. And so I'm not, it's not that I'm not voting because my audience is 50, 50. I think my audience is 50, 50 because I don't view, I sort of assume my audience is interested in similar things to me, which is being curious about the world, being curious about personal development and how you could be a better person given all the amazing things we have in, in society right now and, and culture and so on. And and that's above politics. Like no one politician, you know, there's the saying, you know, make your bed first before you go out and try to change the world. Like most people don't make their bed mm. metaphorically because I never actually make my bed. But, uh, you know, so I, I assume my audience is like me and so not as interested in politics or national politics, which again are, are mostly irrelevant. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think this election has sort of, everybody says this is the most important election in our history. 
And that might be true, but it's still not more important than your personal growth, personal development, your ability to reduce your stress and have good relationships and be creative and be happy and surrender to the things you can't control. So, you know, Biden as president or, or Trump as president or Kanye West as president is not going to change any of that for anyone. Well, it'll change, it'll change for, for someone. I mean, it won't change for you. You're, you have enough of an infrastructure around you, but you you know. Um, but it won't make my relationship with my wife any better or no. worse, depending on who's president, or or my relationship with my kids, or my sense that I need to exercise or eat well. Like none of that. Like these things that are so massively more important than than you know trade deals. Uh, uh, you know, they're more important than anything. They're they're whether you live or die, or and whether you live or die a good life, that won't change. Right. That that's fair. You know, you said that the uh you said that people say this is the most important election in our lifetime and I am searching as we're talking but I'm not finding it fast enough. I was curious about the history of people saying this is the most important election of our lifetime and so I oh, That's a great idea. I posted that on it's going to be the next episode of Pessimist Archive. I posted that on Twitter and a number of people started digging around in newspaper archives and found it going back to at least the 1800s where people said this is the most important election of our lifetime. You know, we well, we love we love a sense that we are participating in something that is unique and critical and that we stand at the crossroads of history. We want to stand at the crossroads of history and I think that Therefore, we are very, very attracted to any statements that tell us that we are experiencing and can participate in something that is drastically important. It's, it's why I think the, the, this is the most important of our election of our lifetime is the exact same as the most dramatic episode of The Bachelor ever. You've got to tune in to the most dramatic episode of The Bachelor ever. Even though every right. single episode tells you that, it still catches you. You still got to tune in. Right, or this is a special Christmas episode of Melrose Place or whatever. Right, <laughs> like, right. You, you know, there's always, but you know, you're right. Like, if you think about it, you know, and you discussed this in the podcast episode we're going to talk about, your, your, the 224 years of election hacking, mm -hmm. you know, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, that was the most important election of a lifetime, potentially. Sure or, was. 1916, Woodrow Wilson, that was the most important. That got us into World War I. Mm -hmm. Or 1940, even though it was Roosevelt's third term, that was the most important election of a lifetime. There's so many elections. Of course, 1860 with Abraham Lincoln, that created the Civil War, that election. Again, not saying that's a bad thing, but sure. that was an, certainly an important election. I mean, there things were so – people say, oh, it's never been more polarized. There was a senator, I think it was like 1857 or 1858, who tried to kill another senator on yeah. the Senate floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, uh -huh. things were pretty polarized. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, it's true. Uh, and we forget that. I mean, I've been talking about that a lot with um, people who are talking about the social dilemma with me, that doc documentary on Netflix. And they're saying, well, you know, the, social media has created the most polarized elect you know the, the most polarized citizenry we've ever had and and I you know and I just want to say look I'm not discounting that we are not polarized we are extremely polarized but we did fight a civil war right like there were other times in which 
we as a nation were not together in any stretch of the imagination. We were, in fact, extremely violent towards each other. And that stuff happened before Facebook. So we can't blame it all on Facebook. It's baked in. And we've got problems to solve that are a lot larger than Facebook. Um, so, uh, by the way, here's, um, here's uh, November 5th. 1864, the coming election. Before another publishing day, the most important election in the history of this nation will have occurred. We trust that the decision of a great people will be right and that the interests of the nation will be maintained at the ballot box, et cetera, et cetera. Again, 1864, the most important election. All right, well, here, here's a question. Had. Yeah. Because I don't know the answer to it. Uh, who was Lincoln running against in 1864? And I'm going to just, I, I was going to guess someone, but now I realize that's ridiculous. So I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. I've got Google. I think it's someone with some question. weird biblical name. Some something, some weird name. Uh, well, congratulations to whoever knows that off the top of their head, and then they're now chastising us internally for not knowing this. The answer I was George B. McClellan. Oh, well, I was totally wrong. So that was a, a general, I believe, that Lincoln had fired, but I also could be wrong on that. Uh, he was an American soldier, civil engineer, railroad executive, and politician who served as the 24th governor of New Jersey. Oh, there you go. How about that? And so wh why did he even run? What was his point? <laughs> um, <laughs> again, uh, you're going to have to come back to me after I'm more educated. You right now who's listening, who knows the answer to this, if only we could patch you in by the magic of time travel. Uh, most and historians apparently have judged that McClellan was a poor battlefield general. So for whatever that's worth. Ah, so, okay, he was a general. Um and then in terms of like uh, election hacking and corruption, I don't think people realize, and you you point this out in your recent podcast of the Pessimist Archive, uh, an excellent overall podcast, Thank by you. the way, you pointed out that there's been a lot of corruption in elections. This is, you know, election hacking is nothing new. I mean, you look at like 1960, John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon, people forget that was actually a contested election in the courts. Now, Nixon conceded on the night of the election, mm. but he contested it all until the inauguration. And and by the way, a lot of dead people probably voted for John F. Kennedy. <laughs> right, right. So this is the, the motivating factor of this. And just sort of for quick context here. So I host this podcast called Pessimists Archive. And Pessimists Archive, the idea is to understand the history of the things that we're concerned about right now so that we can get a fuller understanding. And my generally what I'm concerned about is the nature of change, why people are afraid of innovation, how people ultimately embrace innovation, why was the teddy bear a subject of a moral crisis in 1907? Um, the answer is because there was a lot of fear over how women were entering the workforce. And uh, by the way- Wait, why yeah, what, what's the connection between the two? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's really amazing. This is, this is, I have an episode. It's, you got to go, the teddy bears. Um, so it started with a, uh, started with a priest in Michigan named Father Michael Esper. And Esper went on this long tirade at the pulpit which was then picked up, uh, reported locally, and then picked up around the nation, which then started um, bans on teddy bears and movements against teddy bears. And uh, it was really the, the equivalent of something going viral in 1907. And what his argument was, was that if you introduce a teddy bear to a girl, then she will stop playing with a doll and she will instead be playing with the teddy bear. And because she's not playing with the doll, she will not develop maternal instincts, and therefore she will not grow up to be a mother. 
She will grow up to be something worse, James, like someone who enters the workforce. And this was the concern because at the time there was a major shift happening in um, in a, num- a number of things. So there was, there was the concern that women were entering the workforce and women were also becoming educated in numbers that they hadn't been before. Uh, and so there was a lot of fear over what was causing that, what influences were moving women away from being just pure homemakers. There was also something that was... Um, just flat-out racist and was also endorsed by Teddy Roosevelt. So not um, you can't say that the moment that we're experiencing right now in which the president of the United States at least gives friendly nods towards racism is unprecedented. It's certainly not. There's something called, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to conjure it in my head, um, race suicide. So race suicide was this concern that the white race was harming itself, lowering its birth rate, and doing whatever it could to kind of minimize its own dominance in culture, and in doing so would open up the opportunity for other races to populate and 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 grow and have a fuller standing in society. They called it race suicide. And so a big concern here was that if you were introducing teddy bears to young white girls, then these young white girls would grow up and enter the workforce and not become mothers who have large families. And this contributes to race suicide. So this, I mean, so now when you're looking at a teddy bear, this was actually one of the most subversive, now that you look at it that way, one of the most subversive toys that's ever been introduced. And the funny thing is that teddy bears weren't originally for girls, they were for boys. But the boys would bring them home and then the girls would get into them and that that's where the problem began. Wow, it's, it's so interesting because what I like about these types of ideas and history is that it shows you that most of the things we worry about, hence your podcast is called The Pessimist Archive, most of the things we worry about are just BS. Yes. <laughs> like they're never really going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean bad things don't happen. They mm-hmm. often do. But, you know, you have like, uh, uh, you know, remember Y2K in 2000? Everyone everyone was convinced, convinced. Like I, the smartest people in the world were telling me the lights are just going to go out all over the world on January 1st, 2000 because of this bug in all the software once the millennium changes. And of course it didn't happen. Uh, in 2007, Steve Ballmer was the CEO of Microsoft then said, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share, no chance. And you know, the Beatles were of course rejected by the, the first record album, the uh, record label that they, uh, uh, auditioned for and on and on. Mm-hmm. And all of these things where people were pessimists, whether it's the computer or the iPhone or the the car where people right. said, oh, if you go faster than, you know, 15 miles an hour, you're going to have a heart attack. So do you all know, of these things. Yeah. All these things were feared and all these things actually created great gain. Do you know what people said if you were in, in the, uh, in like the early 1900s, if you drove down the street in a horseless carriage, which is what they called the early car, do you know what they would yell at you? Mm-mm. Get a horse. They yelled, get a horse at you. Because That's they found funny. it so appalling that you were driving a replacement to a horse. Yeah, this is what we do. This is what we do over and over again. And, and you know, it's understandable because it's so much easier to see loss than gain. Right? The so change comes along. You can immediately identify the loss. Oh, this thing that I am comfortable with is now disappearing. 
and I don't like that. And now I'm going to extrapolate outward what is going to happen to me and to society because this thing that I know is going to disappear. But oftentimes what really happens, well, first of all, one, it doesn't disappear. What it does is it just integrates, right? We're all still listening to radio and we have television, right? We're all still riding bicycles and we have cars. We can have both. Just because one thing comes along, it doesn't necessarily wholesale replace another. It integrates. But also, we have a really hard time anticipating gain. So the people of 1907 who were completely horrified at the idea that a young girl with a teddy bear was going to grow up and, and you know, be an important businesswoman, they couldn't understand how that was going to be valuable for society. I mean, it was just, it was, they were seeing loss and they were not seeing gain. And, you, you think, know, I mean, do you think that, that, that yeah. goes in, on to other topics? Like, do yes. you think if you, if you felt this way about teddy bears, you might've felt this way about the telephone also? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the telephone was, uh, was, was either feared or ridiculed for all sorts of things. One of the reasons was because, uh, and this is going to sound quite familiar because it was introducing technology that actually tore us apart. Why would you have to go and see somebody in person if you could just call them? I mean, if we have that kind of technology, well, then there's no reason to ever go see anybody. Or the, right. the fabric it, it, of society will be torn apart. The, the modern equivalent now is, is people talking about Zoom fatigue yeah. when, of course, we're talking on Zoom and we probably would not have talk, spoken at all these six months if not for Zoom. That's right. And, you know, so here's a funny thing about, here's a funny thing about Zoom. You know, we think of telecom conferencing technology, video conferencing technology as a pretty modern thing. I mean, obviously Zoom didn't inter didn't introduce it, but uh, but I think that FaceTime was the technology that, or the software that really introduced it to the masses um, in, a, in a kind of easy and convenient way. Skype existed before or whatever. But, um, but anyway, did you know that <laughs> my five-year-old son just walked in. He he somehow manages to figure out every time I'm recording a podcast and will pop <laughs> in. I actually was just, speaking of Zoom, I was literally just a couple of days ago interviewing the founder and CEO of Zoom. And who, oh, really? wouldn't you know it, who shows up but my five-year-old to just interrupt. A really great That's Zoom great. moment with the founder of Zoom. So, um, so anyway, AT&T introduced the video phone in the 1960s and people hated it. Nobody wanted it. It was a complete flop. People were alarmed at the very idea of it. You know what they talked about? They talked about telephone face. I don't want somebody to see my telephone face. What they were afraid of was getting into a world like the Jetsons. Have you ever seen George Jetson just pick up a regular phone? No, it doesn't exist. In the Jetsons, the only way to call somebody is with a video phone. And I think that that's what people were seeing. They were seeing a full replacement. This video phone is going to come along. It's going to replace my regular phone. That means that I can't take phone calls anymore in my underwear or if somebody tells me something bad and I scowl, they're going to see that scowl. It's my telephone face. That's what they were using, the phrase telephone face. And they're going to, they, we hated it. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it. We don't want it. And so it was a flop. Nobody. And now many, many decades later, we have it. Why do we like it? My argument is because now we have so many different options. We can text people, for example. There are so many different ways to communicate that video becomes just one of a large menu of options usable at the time in which it feels most appropriate, which is how technology works. That's how all this stuff works. Again, it doesn't replace, it integrates. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. In your latest episode yeah. of Pessimist Archive, why did you get into election hacking? Oh, right. So <laughs> thanks for bringing it back after that, like, 20-minute. So... I was very, I'm very interested in the idea of mistakenly understanding something to be unprecedented. And mm. there, ha if you remember the dialogue that was happening after 2016, the word that was used over and over and over again was unprecedented. What has happened is unprecedented. And I just figured, you know, I bet it's not. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a I'm 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 not a scholar of American democracy, but I bet it's not. And I should find someone who is a scholar of American democracy. So I talked to a couple of them, and what I found was that, well, first of all, the very first attempt at foreign manipulation of our elections came in 1796, which was our very first party election after Washington was stepping down after two terms, and uh, and France tried to intervene in a number of ways, including sending a couple letters to the Secretary of State of America at the time, functionally saying, if you don't drop this treaty that you're working out with Great Britain right now, we're going to drag you into war. They were bluffing. They didn't drag us into war. But they cc'd functionally. They sent those letters to the Secretary of State, and they sent them to the Philadelphia Aurora, the newspaper that was edited by Benjamin Franklin's grandson, who then, of course, published them so that every important person in Philadelphia, the capital of the United States at the time, could read them. So, uh, And the reason for that, by the way, was because France really wanted Jefferson to win. They wanted Adams to lose. So the idea was, if Adams wins, it's war for you. Of course, Adams won. It was not war for us. But anyway, um, I talked to, then I talked to, but, but the, the, the key here is that I talked to David Scheimer. David Scheimer wrote a book called Rigged. He's a, um, he's a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars, and he's also at Yale University. And he wrote a book called Rigged, which is about the hundred years of foreign meddling um, in elections by Russia, dot, 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 and America, because America has done it too. And he made this great point to me, which was that if you treat something like it's unprecedented, then you're saying that you have no history to it. And if there's no history to it, then you can't identify the cause of it. And if you can't identify the cause of it, then you are opening yourself up to lies and myths and untruths. And that is where I wanted to get into. 
what do you mean you can't identify the cause of it? Well, so if we are to say that the election of 2016 was unprecedented, has never happened before, never has Russia been able to interfere in our elections before, then you would reasonably say, okay, what is new that could be the cause? How can I figure out how to stop this? Well, I would identify the cause of this. Now, as I say in my uh, in the episode, just think about it logically. If I woke up this morning and my face was lime green, that is an unprecedented problem for me. And so the first thing that I would do is I would think, well, what's new? Did I eat something that I'd never eaten before? Did I touch something that I'd never touched before? What could be the new cause of this unprecedented problem? And if you are to think that election meddling is an unprecedented problem, then you would reasonably think that the newest technology would be the thing that enabled and caused it. Mm. And that is not to say that there isn't a uh, there isn't blame to be placed on Facebook and other social media platforms or to say that the heads of those platforms shouldn't be thinking about how their platforms are used responsibly and how to police them. But if you think that that's the only problem, then you are missing the actual problem. Because the actual problem goes a hell of a lot deeper. All Russia is doing, and they have done it for a hundred years, is identify existing fissures in America and then use whatever means of communication is available and also just whatever means of attention getting is available to exacerbate those fissions. And in doing so, they can create systemic change. Russia isn't interested in one candidate over another. I mean, Russia doesn't care about Trump in particular. Russia cares about destabilizing American democracy, and they've been working at that for a long time, since the beginning of the Soviet Union. And so this is the thing that we need to be worried about. If you just focus on Facebook, if you think that throwing Mark Zuckerberg in jail is going to solve this problem, then you've missed the problem. Obviously, I'm not saying that Mark Zuckerberg is blameless. He should be more responsible, but that's not the whole problem. And if you treat it as unprecedented, then you don't focus on the whole problem. That That's really interesting because I did not, um, you know, before listening to the podcast, I didn't look at it that way. And well, how should you, how should we look at it? Like given that Russia is, is doing this and by the way, probably more countries than just Russia, right? Like every country is doing it. Absolutely. And as you, as you pointed out, we're doing it to every country. It's just, it's just like when people are astonished that U.S. spies are found in other countries. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Where we have spies on the, on on other countries? Yeah, we spot. We even spy on Canada. So it's yeah, not, we do the exact same unusual. thing, right? So so how how should one look at, you know, and you're called the pessimist archive, but like, what's an optimistic way to look on the fact that we're all kind of. Uh, you know, playing around with each other's election systems. Yeah, well, so first of all, the reason it's called the Pessimist Archive is because, and I, it's funny, you call something one thing and then you realize that people understand it to be something else and you're like stuck with the name. Pessimist Archive is supposed to be an archive of pessimists. It's pessimists from the past. It's not that it's a pessimistic show. Um, it's actually quite an optimistic show, although I think when you're talking right. about you know, uh, election hacking, it's, it's hard to be totally optimistic about it because the problem is so gigantic and systemic. But... I mean, first of all, we need to all take a step back and we need to say that every single one of us has some role to play here. Everybody, right? From the citizen, I mean, if you are if you are just a citizen who is a consumer of news, then here's the role that you can play. Stop being so gullible, 
You have to understand where information is coming from and how that information has an agenda. And if you're just going to be consuming anything at face value and passing it along because it fits into whatever your preconceived notion is of the world, well, then you are being gullible and you're playing exactly into the hands of the people who are trying to manipulate you. But that also goes to the to, to media, including mainstream media. I mean, you know, one of one of the one of the tactics that Russia has used quite effectively, uh, obviously in 2016, but they've done it many, many, many times before is to, um, you know, I mean, like the, the hacking of the DNC and the leaked emails, that is a that is not like unprecedented Russia. That's classic Russia. They've done that so many times. And when they've and when they've when they've tried to get um dirt on uh on presidential candidates that they don't like and then leak it and they can't find any dirt, they just make it up and then they send it out anyway. This is they've been doing this over and over again. So what do you need to do? Well I feel like the the media um uh, the media and I and I hate categorizing the media as the media as if it's one giant thing because obviously it's not particularly since you're the media the media needs to be more attentive and responsible to where information is coming from so that they can um, either properly contextualize it or not pass it along and be just a pawn in in a foreign government's attempt at interfering with our elections. But America and the rest of the world also has to play a role here. And David Scheimer lays this out very nicely, far better than I can, because again, he is a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Yale University, and I'm just a podcaster who makes a magazine. But I think that he, um, you know, his argument is, um, look, one thing that um, that we have failed to do is... Um, is hold anybody accountable, either internally or externally. Uh, we, you know, Vladimir Putin has basically faced absolutely no consequences for doing this. And you know, if you do something and you face no consequences, you are basically being encouraged to do it over and over and over again. So, um, you know, there, there is a there is a role that every single person has to play here, from the media consumer to the media itself to the government and uh, and everybody in between. And yes, again, Mark Zuckerberg plays a role there. But if you're gonna think that Mark Zuckerberg is the end all and be all of this problem, then you're wrong. So, so what what are other times to so give a, give an example where Russia kind of leaked information or or manipulated our election? Um, well, so so here's the interesting thing about it. It's not just that they are targeting elections; they're actually targeting us on a constant basis. So America needs to, and and this was this was a point that was being made to me by a historian at the University of Missouri who I spoke to about early American elections. He said, "Look." One thing you have to keep in mind and that America does not seem to keep in mind is that people around the world are all invested in what happens day-to-day in America and also in our elections. We like to think of America as some kind of bubble and that Russia had, in this case, penetrated the bubble. That's not true. Everybody's here all the time and everyone's constantly tugging on us. And we don't seem to take that into account. We have this idea of American exceptionalism as we're somehow separate from the rest of the world. We're not. And so you, you, the, the starting point has to be we are always always, always the targets of manipulation. So here, here's one, just, here's just one example that I found really interesting from what David Scheimer told me. And by the way, I should note that David had talked to, for this book of his, he had talked to, uh, I think more than 130 former officials, including seven former CIA directors and a former KGB director. So he's hearing mm-hmm. it directly from their mouths and he's also going through their, um, their documents. One of the things that he told me that I really loved was that I, I believe this was in 1960, but I could have the date wrong, that um, during a UN general assembly, a number of delegations from Asian and African countries gets this horrific, racist note 
signed by the KKK. And one of the delegations from Africa gets up and reads it into the official record in the UN delegation to say how unbelievably awful this is, which of course prompts the um, American delegation to get up and apologize on behalf of America. Now, the KKK didn't write that letter. The KGB wrote that letter and they signed it for the KKK. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to, and this is the exact quote from the internal KGB documents that David Scheimer had gotten a hold of, they want to portray America as a, quote, hotbed of hate. They want to be showing that America is full of divisions and hatred. And this is a destabilizing force in America. It doesn't just happen at election time. It happens constantly. And so, yeah, this was this was an effective campaign. Um, what are other things that Russia had done? Well, I mean, Russia had... Um, had had uh, had had uh, recruited or tricked uh, reporters at newspapers to uh, publish friendly information about Russia, which then, of course, were repeated in other newspapers and just sort of got washed into the American public as if it was regular information. They used radio. Don't forget that, like, if you were in if you were in Florida or all the way to Texas in the 1980s and turned on the radio, you know what you would hear broadcasting out of Havana? You'd hear. Radio Moscow. I mean, we have been constantly, constantly barraged with information and misinformation from Russia. It's not just now. So, I mean, and and again, this is to the point of how elections in general are filled more with messages than, you know, almost meaningless messages or irrelevant messages than actual content that could I can use to say, Oh, this is going to improve my life. Whether it's coming from a candidate or whether it's coming from some unknown source that's trying to manipulate the the media, it, there's almost no difference. Like like the whole problem with Facebook in 2016 or Google or whatever is that they could magnify a message. So you could end up being in Facebook groups or having seeing messages in your feed that purport to be um, evidence of certain issues when in fact they weren't. And Facebook was where we were getting all our news. Twitter was getting where, where we were getting all of our news. Yeah. So. Again, it makes you wonder that this is a little pessimistic. Like this is not pessimistic, but cynical about how to conduct an election. If you're never going to be able to really understand what the real narratives of the candidates are, what, what, why do we even have elections? It's a good question. It's a question for somebody, uh, as somebody who's more of a constitutional scholar than me to answer. But I think that you're right that it's been a very long time, if ever. I mean, the, the, the campaign of 1796, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, that was a vicious campaign. I mean, vicious lies, insults. I mean, you know, of course, back then, the actual candidates didn't go and campaign themselves, but they used proxies. And, and at the time, you know, we think of, we think of now as uh, living in a very polarized media landscape where we will only see the information that we agree with because algorithms and we can tune in to Fox News or MSNBC depending on our political persuasion and isn't this awful and what a new unprecedented thing this is. And that, of course, is not true back then and for really most of American history, what you had was cities with tons of newspapers tons, right? It's not like you had like one newspaper per city. You had tons of them and they were all party newspapers. Right. They're very partisan. They're very partisan. And they, they, you, you could barely trust anything that was it. They were all reporting uh, news as they saw it to influence your decision making. Um, it, it was actually a kind of blip in American history where we had what you might think of as a more centralized 
um, nonpartisan, truth-based uh, news media, right? Which which maybe you think of as is in a kind of golden agey time where there are just like four broadcasts, the CBS, CBS Evening News, and you know all you've got is a handful of um, newspapers uh, who are, you know who are read nationally, and then of course that's all fractured. But you know, really, that was just a moment in time. And so, yeah, it's true that right now we have information that is rocket shipping across the country. But, you know, if you go back to 1796, the idea of getting information across the country or from Europe in a matter of days or weeks and then being able to print it and distribute it rapidly was actually seen as a mind-blowing idea to them. Information was moving at an extremely rapid pace. And that is basically what we can say for ourselves now. Information is moving at an extremely rapid pace. Is it faster than it was in 1796? Yes, obviously. But I don't think that we can say that we're experiencing something that people hadn't been experiencing before or that we're subject to the kind of misinformation that people were never Ever, um, subject to before. We have always been doing this to ourselves. Well, let me ask you this, this uh, the opposite, which is what election or elections can you think of weren't polarizing? That's a really good question. You know, it's so, it's so funny. I, I don't, maybe you have an answer to this. I, so I have a, um, I have a research assistant on Pessimist Archive and for the next episode about the history of the most important election of our lifetime, I had asked her to call around. And so I don't have the answer yet, so tune into Pessimist Archive, which is not meant to be some hook, but I just literally don't have the answer right now. But I asked her to go find the least important election of our lifetime. Like, What was the one that generally is understood to be least consequential? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure that I, there were plenty of them. Yeah, let's, let's just fool around for a second. So... Uh... I would argue 2012, Romney versus Obama. I, I could barely even remember that election. <laughs> right. Who was Romney's VP candidate? Do you remember? Paul Ryan, right? Uh, yeah, Paul Ryan, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's funny because you look back at that now, what you see is a verdict being rendered on the first black president, which is which felt very important at the time. Um, also, Romney felt, I mean, you know, when, when you compare him to the kind of, most prominent Republicans now, it like the the comparison just doesn't hold. But at the time, he felt like this really slippery, unpredictable candidate who was willing to say whatever it took to get. It. You remember that? Like you know, Romney is Romney is conservative, but he's also a fairly moderate conservative relative. Yeah, to, I mean, he, he was the he was the governor of Massachusetts, the most liberal state in the United States. Right. So he he it wasn't like his uh, beliefs about how a country should be run were that much different than Obama. Well, no, right. And, and and actually, funny enough, Romney was the guy who championed the individual mandate in Massachusetts, which then Obama just took and became right. Obamacare, and then suddenly Republicans hated it. But, uh, but, but Romney, so do you remember the phrase, I mean, of course, the classic phrase from Romney was binders full of women, but I think the blasting phrase was self-deportation, right? Romney was trying to tack to the right because he understood that he wasn't really embraced by the right and he needed that base. And so he was starting to say and do things that were just signals to the to the kind of hard right base that he was going to be their guy. And so one of the things that he said during a debate was that um, that America should make life for immigrants, undocumented immigrants, so unpleasant that they would self-deport. And that was a pretty... That was a pretty um, loud call to the very right and was quite controversial at the time. Now, of course, you think about it in the context of 
how immigrants have been treated recently, and you think, well, so, what, what a what a simple time. Um, but I I can understand how when you look back at that, you feel like it felt consequential. I mean, now now when you think of it, you know, you think, well, you know, I think had Romney been president, I don't know that he would have radically altered the fabric of America uh, all that much. Um, and maybe it wasn't nearly as consequential, but it certainly felt like it at the time. And I guess that's the thing. It always feels like it. It always feels like it, but it. I, I remember even as it was happening though, because and the reason why I bring up that election as opposed to something in the 1800s is we were living sure. then and you could, you could gauge how much you cared about it. And I don't think I watched any of the debates. I don't think I really cared and i and again i'm someone who likes at least the game-like aspect of all these elections there almost was no game there like it almost really just didn't matter who who won oh well but do you remember this could be i i, I could be confusing my obama candidate runs um but i think that this was 2012 with romney where he the first debate there were there were i think three debates and the first one he came out and he was like asleep I, Obama was like asleep. Like I don't, know, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he's ever spoken about what happened, but he was so out of it, and um, and lethargic. And Romney was just running all Gosh, over. Him. I don't remember that. And uh, and so um, there was, of course, just absolute panic on the left about this, and uh, and you know, and, and the Romney team was was. Um, doing a victory lap and it felt like it felt like a real sporting event you know it felt like the the fighters came out in round one and one fighter like wasn't awake and then everybody was really eager for round two and then of course obama came out like round two and he was like ready to swing and punch he understood that he had underperformed in the first one and it, it felt like a real boxing match but the reason that i remember wanting to watch it was because i mean not just for the theatrics of it and because i was invested in that election at the time but because you could feel like these were two guys who were going to get out on that stage and articulate points of view. And that's that's an mm. exciting thing. That's a good thing. I think that we we want that. And yeah, there's going to be kind of stupid theatrics to it and all the different formats uh, that uh, that presidential debates have. Like this idea of like moving or like walking around in the town hall style and taking questions from people. I feel like it's such a stupid television creation. But um, But, you know, ultimately... They those two mostly let each other speak, and they mostly articulated ideas. I mean, I you know I can't I can't tell you years yeah, later I, if they were I, true or not, but they were ideas. I think that shows the lack of polarization. The fact that they, you know, acted like gentlemen and they were able to articulate points that we were interested in, and we'd have to weigh those points and see which side we agreed with almost demonstrates how little polarization there was. I mean, of course, there were people they had their camps, but in general, it felt like they were making an argument to America with the idea that we would then decide based on their arguments. And so that that suggests to me that they're not, it wasn't that polarizing. It wasn't like the fate of the world was at hand. So they were going to like just tear each other apart. Right. That's true. And, um, and yet, and yet both sides, I mean, I can remember this clearly, both sides absolutely, and when I say size, I mean sort of voter bases, absolutely despised the other guy. Thought he was the devil. Because that's what we do, right? I mean, I can't, I can't think of an election that I was cognizant enough to follow, right? I mean, I, I'm 40. So, you know, there were the, 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 the first number of elections that I was alive for, I, I, I'm not going to do very well with. I, I can't tell you a hell of a lot about um, 
Well, I, I think the they were all but, polarizing. But, but did like, you, except, except for maybe 96, Clinton Dole wasn't as polarizing. But mm. uh, I think most elections of your lifetime and my lifetime were, were pretty po- polarizing. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Do you, but here's, but, but, but you know what's so interesting um, looking back and thinking back on these folks is that you feel a sense of absolute hatred for the candidate of the opposing party. I think a lot of people feel an absolute hatred for the candidate of the opposing party. And then when all is said and done, we have a hard time mustering that hatred. I mean, like, that's right. That's a conversation that's happened a lot recently with George W. Bush. Remember when George W. Bush was uh, was like at a baseball game or something, laughing with Ellen DeGeneres, and that I remember started this conversation that I see on Twitter, where some people were, oh, you know, if we could only go back to the George W. Bush days of compassionate conservatism, like you know, even people who weren't conservative, just because he isn't anything in his disposition like Trump. And then other people saying, don't forget how much you hated him. Don't forget how terrible he was. The wars he started, the um, the way that he leaned into the religious right, right? But you, you kind of forget, it's hard to tap back into the visceral, emotional hatred that you feel for a politician once they're no longer in power. Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, you even look at like George H, the father, George H.W. Bush and Clinton, they had a very polarizing election in 1992 but then they became best friends afterwards right and did you did you you know you, you know about that letter that um that bush left yes. bill right um, yeah on the desk yeah uh left to um i mean i just i just heard somebody reading that and it is i mean can you imagine it's just from another time um it's so. Can I? Can I? Can I read it? it just for people yeah, yeah, who don't know beautiful. it. I just pulled it up. Um, okay, so. so this is when George H. W. Bush lost to Bill Clinton. It's it's January twentieth, nineteen ninety three. Bill Clinton sitting in the Oval Office desk for the first time, and there's mm-hmm. this letter by President Bush was left for him. That's right, exactly. And so here's what it says. It says, "Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too." I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Perfect. Perfect size. Perfect words. Perfect. It's great. Everything about it is perfect. Everything about it. And, and, you know, like, and the thing that's most perfect about it is this sense that we need to have some faith in the person who is in charge. But also, I think imbued in that is a sense that the person in charge has to have faith in everybody. It has to go both ways. Mm, mm. And the thing that I think we are not seeing right now is that. Yeah, that is, that's a really good point that these guys just, just flippantly throw the words liar back and forth at each other on the stage. It's like, it's like a debate at a sleepaway camp or something. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. But for, for the sake of your research assistant, I'll throw out one suggested presidential election, which I think in the past 100 years, actually, which I think there was very little polarization. Mm. And that's 1924, Calvin Coolidge versus John Davis. Mm. 
And the only reason I'm saying this is it's it's between world wars where America had gotten a lot more isolationist after World War One. Mm -hmm. So the issue of war wasn't debatable and Coolidge's party wasn't responsible for World War One. And John Davis was politically disconnected from Woodrow Wilson. He was a conservative. Wilson was progressive. And uh, there was also the 1920s boom times. So things were pretty good. And so nobody was really that upset at Coolidge, who was also very an, an honest person. Like he he replaced uh, you know Warren G. Harding, who was corrupt and and died in office. And then finally, both of them, both John Davis and Coolidge, were conservative politically, so conservative and so similar in their issues that uh, Robert La Follette uh, became kind of this socialist third party candidate because there was no alternative to the conservative views that, that both major candidates had. So I'll, I'll just throw that out there as the potential. That's a good polarizing. That's well done. Thank you. Well and done. I, I was debating Eisenhower uh, Stevenson in 1956, but I think the civil rights issues were, were rearing their ugly head mm -hmm. enough that that was, that was somewhat polarizing. So I, I love that. Um, I have no counter to that. Um, but I'm gonna can I can I tell you another? This is this is something. This is where my mind went when I was thinking about how we love and almost need to feel like we are at a moment that is important, and how how unlikely it is. I think probably that we are witnessing the important moment. Uh, which is not to say that decisions that are made at, at ballots are not important, but I think that um, that history has a way of working itself out regardless of uh, which direction it gets tugged. Um, but I, I, I've always been kind of obsessed with the idea that um, people who, and this is going to take a hard turn, you're not going to see it coming, that people who are caught up in doomsday cults are willing to accept that the 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 sheer statistical improbability that they are living at the end right i mean we've earth has been around for a hell of a long time we we as uh, we as um uh, we, we have been um keeping written record of ourselves since at least uh, the sumerians on clay tablets 5000 bc and of course obviously uh what we would understand as um, us in our homo sapien form have been around for uh, a hell of a lot longer before that. And yet to think that you would be alive in your, in your small window in which you are able to partake in history, the, the, if you're fortunate, if you're fortunate, perhaps 80 to 90 to 100 years that you are here, a very a, a blip, a blip, a blink of the eye in terms of history, that you will be here at the moment of the end is so statistically improbable that it shouldn't be considered. And I feel like there's something about that that we discount when we're told that we are at the moment, the precipice, that, you know, that, that uh, in, in, in The Social Dilemma, that, that Netflix documentary where, you know, we're all talking about how this technology that we have built right now is the thing that's going to bring us to the brink. What does he say? This stupid line, uh, checkmate for humanity. Come on, that's so ridiculous. We don't live in that time. We don't live in that time. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I, I agree. I think, you know, and look, this has not, what I'm about to say has nothing to do with climate change science. A lot of climate change science is 
accurate, whatever. But there has been calls for the end of the world. There's a direct link between fears of race. Uh, You just mentioned race suicide in the early 1900s, Mm -hmm. but but it goes back earlier to the 1800s and overpopulation issues go back to the 1800s. So there's this direct intellectual connection and lineage between these worries in the early 1800s all the way up through eugenics and uh you know of course the fears in in world war ii and then in the early 1970s late 1960s there was fears about climate cooling and then there was the the book um i forget if it was called the population bomb or or something there was there was you know basically in in early 70s there was fears that overpopulation was going to lead to worldwide mass hunger and starvation by 1980 Mm -hmm. and and you know and then of course climate cooling became climate warming became climate change and so again i never yes do whatever you can to make the climate as great as possible but the world is not going to i don't think the world is going to die from it from the points you just made like we, we always tend to solve are, you know, the main huge problems of society in the world each generation. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, yeah. the biggest environmental problem in the 1890s was horse manure on the streets. That's because right. This, I love the, this anecdote. Yeah, there was like a foot of horse shit on Wall Street every single day. They had to clear out. And then cars were developed. Nobody expected it. And, and that's all the problem. You know, yeah, that's right. That's so, right. The horse just, manure was a gigantic health hazard and they were trying to figure out what to do with it, but it was impossible to continue to collect it at a pace in which it was going to remove the health problem. And also, what do you do with that amount of horse crap? And, uh, and then the solution was actually not built as a solution to the problem. The solution came out right. of nowhere, which was, which was the car. And, and I, I feel that I, I, that is my hope um, and, you know, that is my hope on climate change, which, um, which I, you know, I, I, I do very, uh, very much believe is a, um, is a, is a crisis and a problem, but, um, but, uh, but I don't think that it's an unsolvable one. And that's because the, the, the history, as you just said, shows that we, um, we, we solve and we also adapt. And, um, and I think that we're very, very, very bad, um, to our own detriment. Unfortunately, historically, very bad at acting on threats until those threats are imminent. And I understand that this is an imminent threat right now. It is, but it's not being felt that way for enough people. And I think that we will get to the point where the kind of resources that are required and also really the um, the, the, the business case to be made for solving it will be such that we will be able to um, shift our attention and shift resources. And I realize, I re- you know, I realize that the, um, the the climate scientists would say, well, at that point it's too late and I don't understand climate science well enough to really have a um, counter to that except to say that we're already in the situation. And so I think that the best thing that we can do is focus on solutions. And when I was at Fast Company, I had a colleague who wrote a really interesting piece about climate, um, uh, carbon capture, carbon capture technology. And, mm-hmm. you know, what this carbon capture technology is not, um, perfected by any means, but a giant problem with climate capture technology is not actually the technology. It's a market problem. There's, who's going to pay for, who's going to pay for it? And, and how do you right, make well, any that, money off that, of that it? issue came up in the debate last night because you, you have to basically retrofit every building to, you know, capture the excess energy that's leaving the building right. so you can reuse it. 
Right. Um, but but that technology is getting simpler and simpler. It's just like like solar panel efficiency. 20 years ago, solar panels were maybe 3% efficient, meaning the so, the sun's rays that hit a solar panel, you only could use 3% of it to, to, to create energy. Now it's maybe 50%. Like that technology gets better and better every year. Yeah. Uh, you know, electronic, uh, electric batteries for cars. That technology has like a Moore's law thing for it going for it. Like you could get, it's like doubling every few years, the, the power of lithium ion batteries and, and so on. Yeah. So these, and, these and, th I feel like these things are being solved. You know, you know, another one, that's an interesting thing to think about in the context of what we've experienced with the pandemic. So one of the great things that I think has come out of the pandemic, and I understand that, that um, a lot of terrible things have come out of the pandemic. One of the great things that have come out of the pandemic has been that we are willing to, in small and large ways, consider things that we wouldn't have considered before. That ideas that seemed too crazy or changes to our lives, our businesses, our industries that maybe we had been faced with or proposed to before that we said, you know what, this isn't going to work or this isn't quite right or this is too disruptive. We're now willing to entertain those things. And that's the kind of thing that comes out of crisis that I think can be really helpful is that it pushes us to entertain things that we hadn't entertained before. And my point is that I have had a number of conversations with people in the nuclear energy industry and they all tell me uh, the same very interesting thing, which is, look, the nuclear energy technology is actually very good. It's very safe. The problem is that people don't trust it. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of Europe is powered by nuclear uh, energy. Yeah, that's right. And But people don't trust it. And that's the biggest problem that they have. It's not a technological problem. It's a trust problem. And uh, and the reason that they come to me was because I do all this research on innovation and fear of innovation, and they, they wanted to kind of talk it through. But it is now occurring to me that, you know, one of the things that changes the calculus is a crisis. A crisis is when you are willing to consider things that you wouldn't have considered before. And I imagine as this crisis deepens, we're going to start to be able to consider and embrace things that we just weren't willing to before. Now, would have would it have been better to do it a lot earlier? Yes. But, you know, listen, you get to it when you get to it. Uh, uh, and um, unfortunately, I think we get to it late, but we'll get to it. Uh, and and that's that's how we work. Unfortunately, that's how we work. We're not very good at predicting the future. We're not very good at playing things out. And we're not very good at taking pain early. We would rather always, and when I say we, I just mean like we culturally, societally, we would rather act when we're really forced to. And I wish that that wasn't the case, but I think that is the case. And I think that you're going to see a great transformation in how we think of this and where the market availability is and also uh, the speed of the development of the technology once we're all really forced to. And and in terms of technology, you had an episode a few episodes ago where you try to predict what's the next technology we're all going to be pessimistic about mm -hmm. or afraid of or whatever. What was uh, What were some of your conclusions? Well, you know, so I had asked to watchers of technology about uh, that question. I asked Kevin Roos, who's a tech columnist for the New York Times, and also Peter Diamandis, who is the head of um, uh, Singularity University, um, a founder of the XPRIZE. And uh, they both had sort of different but also overlapping answers. They both talked about AI and the, the way in which AI is going to become so sophisticated that it'll alter the way that we interact with things. Um, Peter is a big believer that we're all going to be kind of connected to some digital mainframe, you know, biologically at some point, which, you know, I, I don't know how to exactly wrap my head around that. But um, but what I felt like after hearing those guys is 
Um, all that sounds interesting, and you can certainly make it sound scary if you want, which Kevin tilts towards it's scary. Peter obviously tilts towards it's not scary. But that I don't think that my opinion in the year 2020 about how any of this technology is going to play into our lives five, 10 years from now is relevant because I literally don't know the world in which it is going to operate. It is exactly the same as when earlier we were talking about how AT&T in the 1960s introduced video phones and everyone was like, this is ridiculous. But now it makes sense because we live in a world that frankly, the people of the 1960s just literally couldn't have imagined. And you flash forward uh, a generation from now when AI is far more than, you know, stupid chatbots or whatever it is that, you know, the average consumer interacts with an AI now. And you're going to see that it just makes sense because the world will have evolved with the technology. The problem is that we tend to think of technology evolving in a world that remains static, but that's not actually what happens. Technology and the world evolve at the same time. And so the things that the that that any one particular period of time has in terms of technology has evolved with the world. It's evolved to address the problems of the world. It's been created by the people who are living in that world, who are thinking about how to solve future problems. It just makes more sense. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, actually, which is that the world evolves with the technology. It's not like in the 1600s, anybody was inventing the computer. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like the computer sort of came around when we needed it, when everything else was lined up so that now a computer could be invented and could be most useful. And I was reading some article recently where, you know, Moore's Law, which is this idea that the number of calculations a computer can do uh, doubles every 18 months. Well, it turns out this, this study looked back at all of history and that Moore's Law has been in use for the past 5,000 years. <laughs> so the number of calculations humans, society could do has been doubling every 18 months for essentially thousands of years. Yeah. You know, between whatever. And I don't know how that, I don't know why that is. That's a, that, that's a fascinating observation and I think an exciting one. It's not a particularly scary one to me because again, we, we, we're also influenced in ways that are not nefarious the way that Tristan Harris from The Social Dilemma would think, but that are just a kind of natural shift in the way that we think and also what we value. And I don't mean value in some kind of like moral values. I just mean value in terms of, here's an example. So there was a time not that long ago, and certainly I think for, for a great part of history, where memorizing information, the ability to store information in your head was seen as a sign of intelligence, right? Uh, and, um, and now... That is shifting. And the reason that's shifting is because we have information at our fingertips. So when The Atlantic puts, is Google making you stupid on its cover, which I would argue is a stupid cover, but when they said, is Google making you stupid, what they're basically arguing is like, oh, well, now that you're relying upon search engines to find any information that you need, you don't have to retain it in your head anymore, and therefore, we're losing this important marker of intelligence. But what if... It's okay 
What if that's just okay? What if there are other markers of intelligence now? What if, in fact, pattern matching is a great sign of intelligence? What if ability to find and process information quickly is a great sign of intelligence? That doesn't mean that one intelligence is better or worse than the other. It's just that this is what we need now based on the technology available to us. And I think that we need to be open to that, to understanding that we shift not just in the things that we do, but in the things that we value. And that doesn't mean bad. That doesn't mean loss. That just is. Yeah. And, and then there's the point, what's so great about intelligence anyway? <laughs> Mo, I think there's some studies that show like the more intelligent you are by some metric, uh, often the more you require therapy. Yeah. So there's, there's some correlation. Fair enough. Um, do you remember, do you remember this New York times story from, I mean, this is like, this is, I'm possibly the only person who remembers this, but I was so interested in it when I read it early 2000s, the, the New York times magazine ran this piece, uh, arguing that television is making us smarter. And, um, and the piece was about how over the, the history of television, um, television shows have become more and more complex. So the earliest television shows just had an A plot. Just one thing was happening. And then a B plot was introduced. So now you have the, the A plot, and then you have the kind of secondary B plot. And then you have the ABC plot, and then the ABCD plot. And now, you know, I mean, if you turn on, like, if you watched Lost, there are like 57 different plots happening at any one time. And, Best show ever. And there was, I loved Lost. Um, the, you know, listen, that, that end was controversial. I was with them at the time, though now in retrospect, I kind of wish they did something different. But anyway, so I've, you know, the interesting thing that the research that was the foundation of this story had found was that gener older generations who grew up with simpler television had a harder time following more modern television. So if you grew up with television that just showed you an A plot and a B plot, you had a hard time following the kinds of shows that might have had 20 different plots going on at the same time because you just hadn't been trained to follow all of those things at the same time. It doesn't mean that you're dumber. It just means that you hadn't been trained in it. And that that this kind of constant evolution of the complexity of television is training our brains to follow disparate pieces of information in different ways. Now, is that better or worse? I, you know, I don't know, but it is an interesting observation and one that, again, I would say just like my, my basic premise here is change doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Yeah, that's so... I, I don't remember that article about television, but I agree with it very much because, and this is around the same time, in the early OOs, my, my kids were little kids. They were like three years old, four years old, five year old, five years old. And I wanted them to watch TV as much as possible because I figured <laughs> they're going to get exposed yeah. to stories. Like they'll be exposed to thousands of stories by the time they're 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be a benefit since storytelling is such an important skill. Mm. But if you think about it after the OOs, like let's say starting around 2004, 2005, or after the early OOs is what I would consider the golden age of television storytelling, maybe up till about 2012, maybe a little after, where you have not only these complicated uh, plots that it, it wasn't like every episode was just an ABC plot. It was a, an entire season would have maybe 10 different subplots mm. and, and there was an arc to the season. But then even further complicating it is that the heroes were often bad guys. Yes. So Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, to some extent, even lost sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very complicated who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. That never happened before in television. And I'm actually worried with 
the thousands of shows now on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever, we're, we're losing kind of the best television story writing um, because there's, there's not as much, it's too diluted. Oh, but, you know, uh, but I would, I, I would push back on that and I would say, well, you know, first of all, I'm like, I like don't believe in the concept of a golden age. So I push back on that, but, but, but also it's an unprecedented time <laughs> of like decline in television. <laughs> exactly. So, so, um, I think that the dilution and the, the mass creation of television is actually an amazing thing for creators and for television, because it means that people can take more risks. You know, the problem that mm. you had when you had network television is that there was a very finite amount of product that you could create. And so you had to create what felt like the safest, most widely appealing concepts. And that meant that you ended up producing the same television show over and over and over and over again. And now, because Netflix can take a flyer on something and say, um, you know, go make a... Um, a man, it's like as soon as I said this, I was like, I'm going to have a great example, and now I'm totally whiffing. Um, but um, uh, uh, I don't know what, what's what's a show that you've seen recently that's just completely amazing. Uh, my my definition might be different than yours. Mm. I really I really enjoyed the sitcom uh, Dave on Hulu, uh, and I'm watching <laughs> Belgravia right now on Amazon, which is written by Julian Fellows, who wrote Downtown Abbey. Mm. Uh, but. I don't know. I don't know what I can say that I've I've seen recently that's um, blew my mind amazing, which is why I go back to like Lost or Shameless or uh The Wire. I guess it, uh, yeah, or, but I would say Succession is is very Succession's good. Succession's good. Not not over the top like some of those earlier shows. Okay, okay, here's one. Here here finally. Okay. I, I was like I was like what have I watched? What have I watched? What have I watched? Watchmen. Watch Ah, uh, I did not like Watchmen. You didn't like Watchmen. Because I've I've read the comic books a billion times, mm -hmm. and for me, it just doesn't compare to Alan Moore's writing in in the comic okay, books. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. You're an originalist. So I'm, uh, yeah, but, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a snob yeah, on on that. But but for but for everyone else, because Watchmen just won all the awards, every award you can win, Watchmen just gobbled them all up. That was it was a pretty amazing show, and it took a lot of risks. It was a wacky ass show. Right, but it was a wacky. Ass Maybe show. I needed to stick with it. Maybe I I lost the thread and and dropped it. Oh, did you? I actually thought that it started a little weak and then it got stronger as it went. Mm -hmm. But um, but it was it was it was a show full of creative risks, and I don't think that you get many creative risks when you don't have a lot of room to navigate. Netflix can take money and they can give it to somebody and they can say, you're a brilliant creator, go and make something. And sometimes they're going to make an absolute pile of garbage. And sometimes they're going to make an unbelievably brilliant boundary pushing thing. And, and I do think that cream rises to the top. I think that if you put something out there, even in an extremely crowded environment, that people will notice it and it will get embraced. And I think that that's what's so wonderful about Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and whoever throwing tons of money at people because they're willing to say, go make it. We don't, you know, we just, we, just, we need stuff. Go do it. Go do it really well. And uh, and here's the funding to do it. And and I think that what you're going to see is, yeah, you're going to see like a lot of completely forgettable stuff, but you're going to see um, unbelievable things, things that would have never been greenlit before, things that would have never even been considered before. And it's only made possible because the stakes are lower. 
What, what, what are you guys watching right now? What are some shows? Um, it doesn't have to be good or bad. Just what are you watching? So we're we're watching uh, Umbrella Academy, but my wife is bailing on it, so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it through. But I was kind of enjoying we, it. We started it, and I I it reminded me a bit of Heroes, which I really liked, and uh, Alphas, which I really uh-huh. liked. Again, this was like ten years ago, and so I just and I I just didn't like the I felt the writing was a little simple. Yeah, that's how that's how we felt. I like the premise, and I kept. Yeah, I was like, I, 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 I just I love the premise. Love the premise. I wanted to be on board with it. The problem was that the characters kept repeating the same dramatic tension with each other over and over and over again. Yeah. And my wife, every episode, my wife would just like yell at the television. She'd be like, "We already know this. We've already seen this. Like, move it along." Um, we also just started Cobra Kai, which is oh great, super fun. Loved it. Super fun. Loved Cobra Kai. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's a great one. Right. And, and now, okay, well, so here's, do you think in a world of network television, would Cobra Kai have been made? It's, no. no. It's too, what the hell? It's like, it's just too what the hell. What the hell is yeah. this? Why would you make this? But it's wonderful. And, and it goes, and it goes right to, you know, it plays with, the idea of, I mean, I'm only a few episodes in, but it, but it, you know, you, I can sort of see where it's going. It plays with the idea of the hero and the villain in a way that's very compelling, yes. and um, and and I think that is a is a level of complex storytelling, even though it's kind of cheeky and nostalgia driven, that we get only because um, we're able to create things that don't have to have the clear marketability factors, right? I mean, like when you're, you know, when you're going back to network television, you're not just thinking about how to make a show. You're thinking about how to make all the merch. And you're thinking about, you know, the hero has got to be 16 different toys and whatever. And when you're free from that and you're able to say, okay, I'm going to take the hero, I'm going to make them the villain. And then actually, I don't know, we're going to see what happens after that. Like that is when you're able to just focus on the creation of the art. And that's when I think the consumer really wins. Yeah, no, that's a good point because network broadcast TV has a bunch of other needs. They have to have shows that last for multiple seasons mm-hmm. so that advertisers can feel comfortable. That means they have to have the safety and 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 all this stuff. So you're right. I don't think Cobra Kai would have been made. And also, it's I feel like every good show that we're just talking about moves the edge forward in storytelling a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain edginess to Cobra Kai, particularly our view of these characters who we have grown to love over a period of whatever it is, 30 or 40 years or however long since the original Karate Kid, right. we're allowed to do that. We're allowed to move that edge and get rid of our our sacred feelings about the, the these old characters. And it makes me think to be creative, you 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 something's creative if it does move that edge forward and is not derivative. And at the same time, it has to be marketable. So the, the creators of Cobra Kai, obviously they know how to write a story. So they have the tools of creativity. Then they figured out, okay, well, here's how we're going to move the edge. We're going to take this, this sacred institution, the Karate Kid series, and we're going to mess with it. And then they knew the fee- So they knew creativity, they knew the domain, and they knew the field. So they're able to say, okay, well, because it's Karate Kid revisioned, we can pitch this pretty easily. Yeah. And you know what? And you also, you mentioned seasons and I think that's a really important thing. So if you're going to create something for network television, you're going to create something that kind of has no end point and therefore it will, 
it will just kind of, I, it'll do one of two things. You'll either kind of create some sort of procedural where every episode roughly ends where it started, or you'll create something that has to get more and more complex without a real sense of exactly where it's going to land. And that was the problem yeah. with Lost. I mean, yeah. I loved Lost, but the problem was that those guys were given too many seasons and it wasn't, that's not even the right proper framing of it. It's not that they were given too many seasons, it's that they were forced to make too many seasons. I think had they made Lost for for Netflix and they had been able to come in with creative control and say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make the best damn weird ass show on an island it's going to be three seasons start to finish that's the arc period you want it that would have been amazing and that's why that's why i love you know for example watchmen it was it was one season they're not going to do making a second season it would be terrible to make a second season one season that's it mm. you can't do that on network television and i think that that's how you end up with ideas that aren't beautiful because they're ideas that just have to blabber yeah that's uh that's interesting so uh, lost, by the way, I do like the end. I'm one of the few people I'll stand by the end. <laughs> uh, uh, but in any case, you should, we should do a podcast about television sometimes. There's so many interesting issues in television going all the way back to the, the beginning. I know. But and, and you know, I'm, I am, um, I'm starting to get into TV development a bit now. Uh, oh, yeah? yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing I can like say publicly, but I've got, uh, and, and unfortunately none of it stars me. I'm, I'm waiting for that star turn, but I know you, you've gotten yourself into, into TV as well. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm working with a couple of production companies on some different concepts. Um, and, uh, reality or scripted, uh, unscripted, unscripted. Okay. And, um, and it's, you know, it's just, it's super fun. The thing that I have learned about television is that everybody in television will tell you that everyone else in television has no idea what they're talking about, which is a hilarious, <laughs> weird dichotomy. It's like you spend so much time talking to TV people about how dumb TV people are. But I think that the, you know, the real answer is that nobody knows. There's a lot of money on the line. Nobody knows how to make a decision. And so a lot of it just comes down to like timing and wowing somebody and does this feel like it's so exciting that we can speed it to the finish line? Because if it, it pauses for one second, people are going to like overthink it. And, uh, and I, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm like having a blast with it. I'm just, I'm just tossing out ideas and the producer will call me and I'll be strolling the baby around and we'll just talk for an hour. And, uh, it's, it's a weird, 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 weird world of making television. But I think, you know, to go back to what we were saying here, um, if television was as, narrowly defined as it used to be, then nobody would have the time or the money to call stupid ass me up and say, hey, let's talk about this idea, right? And that's, I think that's great. Open, open the doors, let people in who have no idea what they're doing, which certainly includes me, and let's see what we can make. Well, no, I think that's a good point. No one knows what they're doing because I, I like... And and by the way, I'll bring up Lost again. So Lost and Desperate Housewives, I believe, came were both came out on the same weekend mm -hmm. in two thousand four, or maybe within a few weeks of each other. And Lloyd Braun was the executive at ABC in charge of both, and he was fired afterwards, like immediately, <laughs> because ABC was so afraid. I mean, Lost was the most expensive series premiere ever. I think it was a hundred million dollars wow. for that first episode, and and it was, they were both such big risks. They just said, just get rid of this guy. And they fired him. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then they both became huge, massive successes. But I've been, I've had so many stories over the past 25 years of trying to break into television, ranging from HBO to 
working with Spielberg's team, working with, mm -hmm. you know, all the big agencies and production companies. It's a, it's a frustrating world, but, uh, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Good thanks. luck getting it going. And, um, and listen, they call you because you're not, uh, just some random guy. You have these great podcasts. There's a pessimist archive and there's also, we we've had you, you and Nicole on about hush mm -hmm. money and, you know content. You're the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, so you have a lot of you have a lot of you have the skill set to tell a great story on television, and you've been telling them on on podcasts. I encourage everyone to listen to Pessimist Archive and, and Hush Money and whatever else you want them to listen to. <laughs> and no, thank you. you know, I appreciate that. But you know, but it, but listen, but it just goes to show. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel this way. Is like, yeah, fine accomplishments, um, you know, uh, uh, affiliations, whatever it is. I still, at the end of the day, just feel like some guy. I just feel like some guy, some guy with some ideas. And for some reason, people take them seriously. I, I, I don't know. I just don't think that. I don't think that you graduate from that. It doesn't matter who you are. I think. I think that's right. Uh, I don't know. I think there is a little bit different between being known and and working with brands that are known and familiar, like you know, for you for Entrepreneur Magazine, mm -hmm. and then that next leap, which is fame where everywhere you go, people either love you or hate you. Right. And I don't think, I, th I think that leap you have to have a special temperament for, and then you're fooled into thinking that, um, you're important, yeah. but I think the level where you could like do what you want, tell stories, do a podcast that people listen to, maybe do a television show or create something that people use. I think that's all all fun and 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 good. And you're right. Like then it doesn't feel you feel like the same person you've always been, but it just so happens thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people are consuming what you do and that's a a, a product of the work you've put into it and experience and age and you know, it just gets better and better hopefully. I'll take it. That sounds good. Thanks once again, Jason Pfeiffer. Come on again soon to talk. You and Nicole should come back and we'll talk uh, Hush Money next time. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. We're Yeah, we're a little on break on that show because um, I have too many things to do and children running around all the time. But uh, where, where, are, where are you right now? You're in Colorado, I'm in Colorado, right? yeah. All right. I'm going to be here for, for a while. Are you, are you moved out of New York City? Do you have to go back to New York City anytime soon? No, we have tenants in our place and mm. we're... Um, we're out here. We're out here until until there's something to do full time with children when we get back. Like until until I can go home to New York and send my children out of the house all day. Um, there's no reason to go back to New York. But as soon as I can do that, I'm I'm back. I, I can't wait. Well, uh, hopefully we'll all get together soon. And once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.